This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, israelnationalnews.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit 2njb.com slash donate. In mid-October, the IDF chief of staff, Aviv Kochavi, briefed both Netanyahu and blue and white leader Benny Gantz on the state of Israel's security. The situation, according to Kochavi, is grim. With regional stability at a low and threats of war on multiple fronts, Israel faces serious security challenges. Some pundits argue that Kohavi is simply trying to enrich the IDF's coffers. Others claim that this time, it's for real. So the question still stands. Are we on the precipice of war? And if so, what will the next war look like? And with who? Joining us today is Seth Fransman. Seth is the op-ed editor and Middle East affairs analyst at the Jerusalem Post. He has covered the war against Islamic State, three Gaza wars, the conflict in Ukraine, the refugee crisis in Eastern Europe, and also reported from Iraq, Turkey, Jordan, Egypt, Senegal, the UAE, Ukraine, and Russia. Is there a place you haven't been? And uh, also he's the author of Macedonia. He's the author of After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East. So check it out. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, what, what's the biggest threat, I guess, if you had to pick, you know, out of, there's so many options. There's just so many. Right. <laughs> what, what's the biggest threat? To the Israel threat to today? Israel. Yeah, yeah, I think certainly it's clear that the biggest threat is Iran. And not just Iran, but all of the kind of forest of Iranian proxies that are around Israel. I mean, that would include, for instance, Hezbollah, which Israel has fought <laughs> many times since the 80s. And then... I guess Islamic Jihad in, in Gaza, which is a kind of smaller component of Hamas or an ally of Hamas. Uh, the Houthis in Yemen, which they've warned, also have missiles and things that somehow apparently can threaten us. And then, of course, all these Shia militias that you have in Syria and in Iraq that are all part of the same kind of massive Iranian octopus or what have you. Are, so, we, are we going go to war with Iran? I think the general consensus is that eventually there has there will be a war, and it won't necessarily be directly around Jerusalem, but it, it will be between all these proxies and Israel. I mean, and that, that, of course, benefits Iran, because it means that Iran can always pretend like, well, no, you see, that's Hezbollah fighting Israel. It's not us. And I think, by the way, if you go back to 2006, in that war, uh, Qasem Soleimani and Iranian uh, agents were in, were in Lebanon. They were helping Hezbollah. And there were weapons flows from uh, Iran to Hezbollah. So it is, in a sense, Iran. But Iran kind of is able to step back from the picture a bit and try to avoid itself being attacked. And I think Israel is certainly a bit reticent about, like, well, do we really want to tangle with the whole Iran, whole Iran as a country? I mean, what does it mean for the whole region? Because I think it's a lot, it's a lot bigger than us, obviously. It includes Israel's allies and things. But we so. did attack Iranian strongholds in Syria a few months ago. Yes, Oh, I think you killed could, Iranians. Look, I think actually you could just say that Israel and Iran are already at war. I mean, I think actually that's the reality, which is if you read it that way, which is actually Israel has carried out more than a thousand airstrikes or something against Iranian targets in Syria. We're already at war. It's just the question is, okay, we live in this strange era, perhaps, where this isn't like the 19th century where people declare war and there's a piece of paper, right? I mean, 
you know, you fight these kind of shadow conflicts that go on for decades, and it's war, non-war, war, non-war. It's in something else. But, I mean, we've attacked over a 1,000 Iranian targets in Syria, but there hasn't been much of a retaliation. So the question is, is there going to be a retaliation? When and, and, and how is that going to look? I mean, Iran's not going to presumably nuke Israel, but how will it look? I think that is something that the Iranian chief of staff and head of the IRGC and all these guys probably sit around all day thinking about, which is, okay, we've taken some losses. Of course, if you've looked at the reports, not many Iranian citizens have died. Israel's very good at pinpoint strikes, which means you take out a, you know, a warehouse. You, there's nobody there sometimes at 3 in the morning or something. So I think Israel's careful about not killing lots of people because if you kill lots of people, then, of course, they need to, re- they need to feel that they need to respond as opposed to if you just destroyed stuff. Mm-hmm. But I think if we look at the record, Iran has tried, uh, I think, at least four occasions to attack Israel from Syria. That includes a drone in February of 2018, it includes a rocket salvo in May, another attempt in January 2019, and then an attempt last month, actually two months ago now, September, when there were one or two rockets fired from near Damascus that didn't actually get into Israeli territory. There is evidence that they've tried to do things, but I think that's right. It, Iran does not know how to really respond to Israel, and I think because the big question mark that Iran or its allies always face is, wait a sec, if we do something, you know, will that provoke a massive response? How do we do this weird dance? Like, remember that whole incident with Hezbollah, I think it was, was it last month or two months ago, where there was that weird incident where they there was shot a drone? They shot a rocket. Right. And then there were, remember there was a drone in Damascus, uh, sorry, in Beirut, right? Mm-hmm. And Hezbollah said, we, we have to respond, we will respond. And then what did they do? They fired like an anti-tank missile. Yeah, and then they were like, he almost hit an ambulance or something right. like that. And there could have been a war right. if they hadn't missed it by a few meters. In Israel? Yeah. But wasn't there also this whole thing that Israel did this charade where they pretended that they were wounded? And then it turned out yes. later on that actually everyone's acting. And that was so that Hezbollah was ridiculous. Feed. That was, was ridiculous. But the question is, is it, it may not be ridiculous if it means that there's not a conflict and then it saves lives. Like, it looks like a weird dance. But, but the IDF is meant to defeat the enemy. Right. They, they're not meant to... To, to do charades. Part of defeating the enemy can be deceiving the enemy. By pretending you hurt us and evacuating does, in order to avoid. It is kind of reminiscent of the whole, uh, what do they call it? Pollywood? Pallywood? Yeah. I think, wasn't the, the Chinese strategist Sun Tzu said something that every battle is won before it's even fought or something? Like, mm-hmm. what you do beforehand. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't. I mean, we're sitting here in Tel Aviv, right? I mean,. I don't think most people here want a real conflict. And when there's a conflict with Hezbollah, if, if and when it comes, you know, they say there's 200,000 rockets. They say that it's, you know, th- this whole city will all be sitting underground for a few days, maybe right. months. So, What of you, know, you will, I, will I have, though? Well, you will not. <laughs> this is the problem. So I think that's, that's the question. I mean, Israel doesn't, you know, I don't think, I think everyone understands that maybe even through certain back channels via Moscow that, you know, everyone has to be a bit careful. I mean, look, the Russians talk to Israel. The Russians talk to the Iranians. The Russians talk to Damascus. Hezbollah talks to Damascus. There's an understanding a bit of where things are, and there's an understanding perhaps that nobody really wants to take the next step. But we attacked targets in Syria for years. Yes. And recently, it ceased completely. How come? Well, that's a good question. I mean, is it because there's things going on that people don't know about, or is there been a message sent? Or you know, I don't. Yeah, it's not entirely clear. I mean, 
There's Could a it lot be the of Russians things. said that's it. No, I don't think the Russians have said that because I don't think we've heard that, and I don't. I don't look. There is, of course, as you know, there's no government in Israel at the moment, so there are some question marks about here. I, I, I'm not sure how things work, but I do think that Netanyahu has been accused in the past sometimes of heating up the security situation in to get votes or things like that, and I do think that perhaps the idea is, yeah, well, let's cool it off. Because, you know, we don't want to all of a sudden have a conflict that would create all sorts of weird problems in terms of the coalition, maybe. I'm not, I'm not sure. There may be other things at work. So, so your book's about uh, after ISIS, presumably, according the to the title. The book is called After ISIS. Yeah, After ISIS. Presumably, according to the title, we're, we're after what ISIS has been defeated. So how does ISIS play into this whole uh, mess? Well, that's the, right. As you said, the book is not, it's about the war against ISIS. It's not about ISIS itself. And my interest in writing the book, as you said, I'd been to many of these places, is the defeat of ISIS. Because ISIS, as you probably recall, not so long ago, I think in 2014, 2015, it controlled a land area that was like the size of England. I mean, it was something big. Eight million people lived under them. They killed, of course, tens of thousands of people. They were a very bad, dangerous organization. The defeat of ISIS, though, has brought in all these other countries into that vacuum. So you mean, okay, Iran benefits a bit by, of course... It takes over little areas of Iraq and little areas of Syria that ISIS had been in, or Iranian influence goes in. American influence, as we know, has gone into a huge part of Syria. The Russians are in there. Everyone's in. So, like, the defeat of ISIS, or after ISIS, the name of the, name of the book, is about, okay, yeah, so you defeat this organization. Sort of like the Nazis were defeated, right? But we all know within three years there was a Cold War between the Soviets and the Americans. So sometimes you win the war, but then the question is, okay, but what happens, what happens to the peace, quote-unquote, which you don't win the peace. In fact... Mm-hmm. As you've just said, there probably will be another war now between maybe Israel and Iran or someone else, right? Are we really after ISIS, though? I think we're after it in, a, in, a, in most ways because ISIS, look, not only that Baghdadi's dead, uh, that, of course, is in, not in the book because it occurred after the book was published last month, but the fact is this caliphate or whatever they control, this huge land area, their ability, by the way, to commit genocide against Yazidis, their ability to strike all over the world, it seems to have been reduced. When's the last time you were, where was a high-profile ISIS attack? I don't but remember. But the dream The dream what, of, of jihadism and extremism and caliphate and all this of, stuff? Of the uh, uh, Sunnis yes. controlling the Middle East right. and being the dominant force. I mean, how is it different from Turkey's aspirations, well, for example? Right, so that's a, that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, I think that we have a... There's two ways to look at ISIS, I guess. One is that you say, okay, it's part of this kind of jihadist thing, which is, okay, ISIS, and then there's Al-Qaeda. And where did Al-Qaeda come from? It came from, I don't know, Wahhabism or Muslim Brotherhood. or It, it came from all the, you know, what, what's its kind of like, its origins? That's one way to look at it. And, and just kind of weed out the most extreme groups. And then there's another way to look at it, as you just said, which is, yeah, wait a second, this is actually much a much larger problem, which is Sunni extremism. not, And that includes... As you said, countries like Turkey that are more like uh, connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, it includes a whole bunch of other networks. So I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I think you're right. There is a big question mark in the region about what happens to all these people, for instance, the Syrian rebels that were defeated mostly by Assad. What happens to all the people that had been living under ISIS who kind of liked ISIS when it arrived in Mosul and places? I mean, I don't know. I remember people cheering and saying, well, that's kind of cool. So... I think that's right. There may, there may be other types of iterations. Certainly countries like Turkey or Pakistan that have a kind of far-right, extremist, Islamist types of governments where they kill people for blasphemy or whatever. These countries are not, I don't think they're examples of countries that are making the world a better place. 
They're not making it more progressive. They're not making it more like what we see out here. In your opinion, but if you <laughs> in ask their this, opinion, it's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so ISIS is gone. The Syrian rebels are defeated. Uh, Assad is still very much there. Um, the Kurds are kind of are we are we back to square one? Is it are we are we quickly approaching the point where we can say the Syrian civil war was pretty much for naught? What do you mean? Have we dialed the clock back to 2010 now that while well, the yeah. regime is just back and everyone's kind of the way they were? The Kurds have this kind of like semi-autonomous region. Turkey maybe advanced its border 30 kilometers, but like, you know yeah, what I mean? Iran is now holding um, yeah. the entire Syria and Lebanon. Iraq. <laughs> Iraq. Right. I mean, I think that's the thing that's changed, which is if we go back, actually we could go back decades to the 90s when you had all these old regimes in power, right? Mubarak. Um, obviously, Haf, at that time, Hafez Assad, now, now Bashar Assad, and what's his name that was overthrown in Tunisia, all these old regimes, which are actually remnants of Arab nationalism, right? Like the Nasser period, 1950s. These regimes were kind of swept aside. Assad survived. But in what form did he survive? He's, well, he's kind of a proxy of the Russians. He's weak. He's a puppet now. Was he not a proxy of the Russians before? No, I mean, look, remember the Assad regime was, you know, at least under Hafez, kind of styled itself as this very important regime, the axis of resistance. After Saddam was, was uh, killed and hung, you know, I mean, Assad was an important player in the region. Syria was a very different state. Now, look, 10 million people in Syria have become IDPs or refugees, half the country. That's a lot of people. And 500,000 are dead, I guess, something like that. Cities are destroyed. In fact, the Turkish invasion now is destroying even what was left of the nice parts of Syria. So Syria, Europe has changed forever. Oh, Europe has really changed. And I think that's part of what I touch on in the book a bit, which is that remember, in, remember the refugee crisis in 2015 when one million, one million people went all of a sudden to Europe. And then, of course, you have a rise of a lot of populist movements that are saying, wait a sec. Why do we have to take in all these refugees? Why is Europe kind of the dumping ground for all the Middle East problems? Why is there terrorism? I mean, I, I don't know, I've been to Europe in the last few years, and every time you go, you're sur- I'm, I'm surprised by the number of soldiers and you see in train stations, and you want to go to the Louvre. In Paris, or, yeah. every street corner once Right, so had that's a... not normal, right? I mean, that's right. not what you, we used to think well, of, well, Europe or Now whatever. it is. Yeah, and it's not, and is it going to change? I don't, it's not clear. What is that? I don't know what they call it in France. Operation Sentinel, whatever it is, the thing that, it's kind of state of emergency. It's a kind of permanent state. I don't know. It doesn't. How do you go back from that? I think there's a permanent terrorist threat in most European countries, which involves some one of these ramming attacks and knife attacks, and and this happens kind of semi regularly. Some of which you don't even kind of hear about. But there was this, for instance, policeman in France who stabbed mm-hmm. up a bunch of his partners. Yeah. And originally they were like, oh no, he's just crazy. And then it came out, well, no, he's not crazy. Actually, he was motivated by extremism. Right. In, in France, you're not allowed to say, right? You're not uh, supposed to mention religion, right? Yeah. Well, I, I read that now, because ISIS is defeated, so to say, um, there is a grave danger because many European citizens joined mm-hmm. ISIS, right? Yeah. And now, where now their mission is evoked, they can just get on a plane, fly back to France, Germany, and there they, they can infest and, and, and I don't know, Cause some havoc, right? I mean, I think about five thousand Europeans citizens joined ISIS. Of which, if a guy joins ISIS, it means that a bunch of people around him were probably watching videos and stuff. So it represents a much larger pool of people. They didn't all die. A lot of them are stuck in Syria, right? And some of them have gone back or other places. 
these people are very, very dangerous. And not just them, but I think it says something about your society if you raise a lot of people that want to join a group like ISIS. It wasn't like ISIS was secret about what it was doing, right? It had videos showing them cutting people's heads off, raping women. I mean, and people were sitting there in places like London and be like, oh, that sounds like a good summer vacation. So I think that it's a real serious problem. And I would say that's a problem Europe has to talk about. And Europe has to face that internally in terms of saying, wait a sec. Have we raised a generation of you know, people that are extremists? Why are people converting to this extremism? And what, what's, what's wrong with our societies that's causing people to be like that? I think that, and I don't think they've answered that question. Putting soldiers on street corners everywhere doesn't answer that question. So if, if ISIS is gone, uh, isn't it kind of about time for the U.S. to leave Syria? Or is that a mistake? Because there was, you know... I guess it depends on what America is doing in Syria. I think that, uh, remember a long time ago, America got involved in Syria to support the Syrian rebels. They were supposed to be fighting Assad, sort of. And then, of course, Obama said, well, we're not really going to bomb Assad. I mean, the red line with the chemical weapons didn't really mean it. Then ISIS appeared, so Obama's administration kind of shifted its priority to fighting ISIS. And on the Trump administration... You know, they said, okay, we want to defeat ISIS. Okay, you're right, ISIS is defeated. But I, if you recall, I think in 2018, there was a shift. The Trump administration, at least under John Bolton and Pompeo, who was his national security advisor and secretary of state, said, wait, we're also in Syria to kind of block this Iranian corridor. America will not leave Syria until Iran leaves. Actually, Bolton came to Israel and said that. And I understand that, you know, Israel was certainly encouraging the administration, don't leave. Having American boots on the ground or even just a listening post helps us. So, yeah, look, the Americans could just say mission accomplished. We killed Baghdadi. Let's go home. That's kind of what Trump has said, which is, you know what? This is an endless war. I don't care about this. As Trump had said, let them fight each other. But when it comes to Israel, I think... Where does that leave us? Where does it leave us? And I, I think the Trump administration is openly pro-Israel. It's, it's a, you know, it says it's the most pro-Israel American administration ever or whatever. You can, you can read that how you like it. Well, maybe being too pro-Israel is not that helpful. But the point is, it certain, certainly people in the Trump administration listen to Israel, or at least, at least listen to people around Netanyahu. And those people are saying, listen, beware, don't, beware of the Syrian thing. Don't just run away. So it does seem that the Americans are going to stay. I think there's also a bigger question about the American thing, which is, you know, you want to leave a place, but it's like when you're a guest somewhere, right? You don't just leave all your dishes somewhere and leave. I mean, you could you, you wash it up. You, you Did you hear it, Aitan? <laughs> I, I don't know. My, my, my headphones cut out for a <laughs> So I think that, you know, the Americans, okay, exactly, they weren't exactly guests in Syria, but they were there. Do you just walk away I and mean, let the place burn down? I mean, and the way they walked away was a bit shameful. I mean, they had helped this Kurdish fighters. They, they trained 100,000 Kurds, uh, or well, actually Syrian Democratic Forces, which were Kurds and Arabs. And then they were like, oh, well, you know what? Eh, let the Turks bomb them. No, that's not a good way to leave. They should have left the house in order and done it right and, and projected power. You know, you don't just project power with military people. You also have other ways to do it. They should have left it in a proper way. And you can see why they've now come back because actually they half left and they were half out the door and they went back in the house. So the mm -hmm. whole thing is strange. And I think, that's, I think it causes Israel, Israel correctly causes Israel concerns. Because this was like, wait a sec, our biggest ally, the United States of America, is now behaving like a normal actor. It's, it's unclear what's going on. And this, this administration, 
is lacks clarity. Also, but that's, that's what Trump. I mean, I don't know if it's what he likes to do, yes, or if he, he plans to do it. But it's, it's what he bomb. does. Is just kind of like he Chaos. exists in this like cloud of smoke where you're com- you're not really sure what's going on. That's the thing. I, one, I think one problem is you know Trump is not a normal type of American president. But if you listen to his speeches, I mean, he's kind of said what he does, which is listen. I only care about America. I don't care about foreign wars. I don't care about immigrants. That's their problem. Let the Europeans pay for it. Let other people deal with it. I don't care. We're just going to focus on us. So he kind of tells you what he wants to do, and then people are a bit surprised at how kind of aggressive it is or what it ends up. I mean, you know, he says things like, well, you know, well, maybe we'll just make a deal. You know, it's all transactional, right? Um, you know, it's not long-term policy. It's, well, if the North Korean guy's cool, maybe we'll make a deal. We'll see. So that's kind of the Trump mentality. I think that people should just expect that to be the way it is. The question is, well, in a year will we have someone new? Because we've kind of gotten used to this kind of this thing. Mm-hmm. Are we going to see Trump for another five years? Five more years is a long time. Yeah. And what about, so wait, but then there's Trump, Iran, and Israel, which is also an issue. Because Trump has, has, has put some grave sanctions against Iran. On one hand, but on the other hand, it seems like we're alone in our struggle. So I guess my, my question is, are we alone and can we only trust ourselves in the end of the day? I think Israel's policy has generally been that, yeah, we have to only rely on ourselves. I, I actually spoke to former Prime Minister Ehud Omer, I think, last month. Uh, I mean, he may be a bit of a disgraced prime minister, but he was someone that at some point was in charge and did important things. And he said that, you know, he said, listen, it was, oh, that's always been our policy. We don't rely on other people. So, of course, Israel needs weapons systems, and it has, you know, it, of course, it uses F-16s and Western technology. But I think Israel's always understood since the era of Ben-Gurion, or even since, I don't know, the Balfour Declaration or something, that this movement is Zionism in Israel. It's, it's just its own thing. And you, work, you try to find friends where you can. Of course, America is Israel's longest and closest ally. There was a time when France was a very much, you know, France was played more of a role like the Americans, right? I think the first country... And they backstabbed us. Yeah, they did. And then, I think, wasn't the Soviet Union the first country to recognize Israel, first or second? I mean, there was a time when Israel had, or there was a thought, at least among some people on the far left in in Mapai or whatever, that, you know, actually, our real ally is Comrade Stalin. I don't know. It didn't turn out that way. Probably that's a good thing. But I think that, you know, Israel has generally felt that, well, you know, we'll work with the Czechs, we'll work with the French, maybe we'll work with the Chinese, maybe the Indians, you know, it's not always... I think Israel understands that. Let's talk a bit about Lebanon. How do, what's going on there is, is fascinating and surprising, even. What, the cuisine? Sorry? The cuisine? The cuisine, yes. <laughs> it's delicious. It's really good. Yeah, my father still tells stories about the restaurants in Lebanon, you know, what they would... Go hang out uh, in, in the 80s. The taste, in yeah. the 80s, 80s. Yeah, you could just, like, Israeli soldiers would just go around South Lebanon, go to restaurants, visit visit villages. Um, but we've, we're seeing huge riots. We talked about the Arab Spring. It seems it's, this is some kind of an Arab Spring phenomenon there. So how do you see these demonstrations, this, what do they want, and where does this go? Yeah, it's you know the Lebanon thing is unclear. I mean, first of all, it's part of a part of a wider thing. There are also big riots in there in Iraq at the same time. The Iraqi ones are much more violent. 
so 200, 300 people killed. In Lebanon, I think almost no one's been killed as far. I don't but the think. masses in Lebanon. The masses. I don't, it's unclear, right? I mean, I've seen the pictures and stuff. What, which masses are they? Are they, are they the average working class people? Is it mostly bourgeoisie? Is it Christians? Is it Shiites, Sunnis? I mean, I'm not sure I understand completely what's going on. I do understand the people that are against it are Hezbollah and its allies. That's because, of course, Hezbollah is part of the ruling power, even though it only has, I think, eight members of the of the parliament or whatever. But it's still it has a lock somehow on power a bit. And Hezbollah, I think it's ironic. Hezbollah describes itself as the resistance. It's supposed to be like the cool kid, right? But actually, Hezbollah has become like the ossified, boring part of the power structure in Lebanon now, and it's the one keeping people down. It's not resisting anything. So. It's funny. I mean, Hezbollah, I think, is the one trying to keep people off the streets and using thugs and gangs to do it. Whereas other Lebanese, younger people or whatever, who are against sectarianism, who don't want to be a satellite of Iran or whatever, or are angry about banking issues. I think there's a whole confluence of things that came together that is angering, apparently angering young Lebanese. But as I don't know, now it's been a week, a few weeks of it. It's, what's going on now? I mean, is it? Have, I think the protests have kind of been defeated. The prime minister resigned. He resigned, but what does it mean? I mean, he is a, a wealthy Sunni guy, right? I mean, Saad Hariri, the, the son, of course, of Rafiq Hariri, who was murdered, murdered by Hezbollah in 2005. Saad Hariri is not the man his father was. Um, he, he seems like a bit of a doofus, and it doesn't really clear what he's going to achieve. What did he achieve by resigning? So what? So they bring a new Sunni to be prime minister. I don't. Is he resigning and going to lead the, the, this, this protest movement? I haven't seen any evidence that he's doing anything. But do, they, do you think the people in Lebanon realize they're being held hostage by this terror organization that drinks their economy and makes their lives intolerable and that they're puppets in this in this Iranian Hezbollah game? Do you think this is what it's about or, or is it not? I'm not sure because I think that First of all, I don't think Hezbollah makes people's lives mostly intolerable in most parts of Lebanon. I mean, Hezbollah has a big presence in the south. I'm not sure. Life in Lebanon sucks. Does it? Oh, I'm not sure. I've yes. seen pictures. It looks okay, no? I mean, their GDP is like $5,000. Yeah, but would you rather live in Lebanon than, uh, I don't know, Syria or Iraq, right? I mean, yes, isn't it one but of the still, it's still, it's still know, a third world than, country. Better than Egypt. Yeah, well, that's not no, I mean, the tough question, competition. Right. So, like, I don't. The thing about it is, I do think. Hezbollah has been kind of it's 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 where it, the way it portrays itself is a bit complex. First of all, it claims to be resisting Israel, which I think most Lebanese would be like, yeah, we don't need to resist Israel. Just that's fine. Just leave Israel alone. I think that the other thing it does during the Syrian civil war is that Hezbollah got involved supporting Assad. Thousands died. Thousands died. And Lebanese. Yeah, but see, I think Hezbollah portrayed itself at that time. As saying, listen, if we don't go to Syria, the jihadists are going to come here. We have to fight ISIS there. We have to fight all these crazy people. We don't want them here. And I think there's certainly a certain percentage of Lebanese that are like, yeah, I agree. I don't want Lebanon. I don't want Lebanon to go through another civil war. So I guess it's a mixed bag. I think people don't want a civil war in Lebanon. They, I think they do think that Hezbollah has too much power. It controls things. Why doesn't it put its weapons away? What's it doing? Um, but I don't, you know, it's, I think it's complex. I do think also Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah has kind of been able to clamp down a bit on dissent by harassing journalists or even targeted assassinations and things. So we don't always know what people think because we don't, maybe they don't express it themselves. But on the other hand, I mean, the civil war in Lebanon was, you know, over 40, almost 50 years ago. 
now it's the younger generation. They don't necessarily remember what it was like. They don't necessarily. I mean, they grew up in they the wake to talk, of the I think war. they talk about it a lot. I mean, yeah. I remember there were kashas, I think, in 2008 with Hezbollah and uh, supporters of that future party of um, Hariri. So it's always hanging in the background, right? The Civil War, I think, technically ended in 89. And people like Michelle Yoon, right, the president, are veterans of it. So, no, you're right. It's obviously something that dad's or grandpa's generation did. It's, it's, you're right. The average person is, is, like, is closer to our age or whatever and just doesn't know about it. But I do think that it hangs in the background and people say, well, you know, if these riots take the next step, there will be civil strife. I don't think there can be a civil war in Lebanon because the opposition to Hezbollah is not armed. Right. There's no ar- in the end of the day, it's a, it's, a, it's a state in which a minority of Shiite is controlling Christian... Right. And Sunni right. but are they the majority. Are they, are they the, are how? I mean, how we don't. Lebanon refuses to do a census because they don't want to know how many people live there. I don't look. Lebanon's a weird country because prior to the Palestinians' arrival in in forty eight, Lebanon was more. I think it was a majority Christian. The civil war, in some way, was part of that demographic change. But of course, that was lots. Of the Palestinians were Sunnis. Yeah, but they're then still in camps. The Shiites, there. Right. Then there's the Shiite expansionism, which is, I think. Maybe they are poor, had a higher birth rate or something. I don't know if we know exactly what the demographics actually are because they don't want to know what they are. But be that as it may, I mean, the, the way the country's set up is that it's ostensibly run by Christians. The president's a Christian. But under the boot of the, Shi- the Shiite. It's more like under the, I feel like it's always, it's more like, what, what are they, uh, it's kind of blackmailed by them or that they kind of have a... Um, leverage over it or something that they are they are able because they're able to kind of hold it hostage because they have a certain number of people in the parliament and it the system is kind of held hostage by them and i mean the, and hezbollah is strong it's well it's strong because it has weapons because exactly. no one ever bothered to take them away because they were supposed to give them back <laughs> and hezbollah always said no no we need weapons we're fighting israel yeah, but what, why are you fighting Israel? Oh, we have to get back to Sheba farms. Mazota Sheba, this stupid Hardov thing. Why? Well, Hardov, who cares? Why do you want that back? What is it? It's not important. Right. It's just nonsense, their whole like resistance nonsense. And also they try to adopt, like the Iranians, they, they have this narrative that, no, they're going to liberate Al-Aqsa. It's very important, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I don't know. Whether, why, why, what, why do you need to come here? They have... So I think they weave, they weave that into their excuse system. as like, well, you, yeah. we need to have an armed party that's not part of the state. But in the end, they're armed with, you know, over 100,000, 200,000 yeah, rockets. Yeah, it's crazy. They're stronger than the state, probably. I don't know. I yeah. mean, where else in the world do you have a, a thing that exists, like a gang that has 200,000 rockets? Mexico, maybe, or maybe. Colombia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's totally bizarre. You have a country, quote-unquote, and then within that country, there's a group that's kind of has people in parliament, but has its own armed militia. It has, doesn't have tanks, that many tanks, but it has 200,000 rockets. That's bizarre. Can we count on the Lebanese kind of uh, general sentiment to hold Hezbollah back? We did it once. It didn't end so well, right? No, that's right. the whole left, Lebanon right, war. Israel left Lebanon in 2000. And, uh, and then the, obviously the Hezbollah was paying close attention to the second intifada here. And... It also, if you recall how that happened, that, that weird uh, series of kidnappings, Gilad Shalit had been kidnapped because Israel had left Gaza in 2004, 2005. And then Rafi Kariri was killed in Lebanon. And then Hezbollah said, okay, interesting. Gilad Shalit's been kidnapped. Why don't we do the same thing? Mm-hmm. 
Because remember, a new there, government, people new forget prime there was a, an operation to stop the Shalit thing after Shalit called the uh, the Operation Summer Rains, Geshmei Kites. Everyone forgot it because a month later, Hezbollah attacked Israel, and instead of doing another small operation like that, Omer's government said, "No, no, no, we're just going to destroy you." <laughs> And they went crazy. And Hezbollah didn't expect that. And there has been peace ever since. I mean, ostensibly peace. Which leads me to a political question. You know, many people say, you know, many critics of Netanyahu say, you know what? He, you can say many things about him, but he's cautious. He rarely goes to war unless it's really the last, right. r- last, um, last resort. Last resort. Um, and there is, there is um, a danger or... People are, some people are afraid that if Gantz is prime minister, after his campaign about how I killed so many Arabs, vote for me. One of his no. campaigns was, I, <laughs> vote for me because I killed thousands of Arabs. So vote for me, right? Um, and he's a general that maybe like Olmert, he would be hesitant to prove his masculinity yeah. by going to war and thus leading us to... to Devastating what? outcomes. Yeah. I think there's a good chance of that. I think that as oh you God. said, <laughs> what? No, I, mean, I think that Netanyahu. <laughs> no. I think that Netanyahu is is unfairly portrayed abroad sometimes as this far right crazy warmonger, you know. And it's like, yeah, but actually, no, he's not. Well, he, he came to power. There have, of course, there have been conflicts in 2012 and 2014, but then since then, not much. And I think that's right. Netanyahu. Actually, if you look at since the great, quote-unquote, great march of return from in Gaza, which began in, I think, March 2018. There's been more than 1,000 rockets. Actually, there's been more rockets fired yeah. from Gaza in that time of 2018 than during the whole of the 2009 war and 2012 war. So it's a massive number of rockets. And Israel's kind of shrugged them off and said, yeah, we're going to focus on the north. So Netanyahu is quite conservative. He doesn't, it doesn't seem, he does, of course, have an ideology that says we have to be extremely strong. Mm-hmm. Can't be weak. Can't give up land. I'm not going to give up the West Bank. I'm going to do any experiments with Palestinian statehood. But he doesn't want a huge war. And I think that Gantz, as you said, it's not because he's a warmonger, but it's because he may be tested and feel that he must just prove himself. Mm-hmm. And you're right. That that does that could then lead to proving yourself. Could it could could lead to escalation and something like that. And I think that's a that's a problem. We won't ever know whether which is which is the chicken or the egg because. We already know, as we just talked about, that there is a war coming with Hezbollah anyway. I right. Mean, it's probably coming. So You just need to spark. Right. So right? whether it's Bibi or whether it's uh, Gantz in charge, someone's going to be there to light the fire. I mean, or have to deal with the fire. So, like, it could be that a Gantz prime ministership but the artist to put out would the be fire. tested abroad. I assume, though, look, Gantz and his team, which is like several other chiefs of staff, I mean, I don't know. These guys are, these. They, I would feel in terms of the security situation, they're kind of the same. I mean, I don't know, was, what, will the IDF fight worse under Gantz? Or I, don't, I would assume it's all the same. I mean, you're right. He may have a different, different way to calculate decision-making. He may have, yes, he may choose to do this adventure that way. I don't know. You're right. that's, that's a different He never served either as a minister or a prime minister, n- no official government role ever. Yeah, but that's a, that, isn't that that's I guess that's true. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, isn't Israel a country that had a lot of generals in charge? I mean, I don't know Arik Sharon and Yitzhak Rabin. Not and, from uh, nothingness. Not from not without going through the system and gaining experience. Right. I guess and it's yeah. arguable that that, that except Israel, Robin, the Israel first Robin. under the generals sometimes is like worse off. Right. I Meaning well, those have been some right. of the the most like uh, you know 
conflict-ridden periods in Israel's history. Yeah, I mean, he'll have Lipid there in his wing and, and Bogi Alon and uh, who else is the other And one? he'll be in a government probably with left-wing... If right. he, go, if, if well, he labor, does right? the... They'll have what they have yeah. Labour and this what is it the Democratic Party with uh, yeah uh, merit who, uh, who Barack by the way is not afraid not of there going anymore. to war either right I mean right. whatever it is I don't know I mean we'll see it's complicated it may be a unity government though it could be a, a rotational prime ministership which would be you know like a two headed dragon or something yeah <laughs> which which is always a good scenario two headed dragon so anything optimistic you can leave us with. Look, I mean, Israel is, no. very, Israel is very powerful. It's a very strong country. I mean, if, you know, we look out the window. This is a very successful right. country. It, people, countries in the region respect Israel. They are, some of them look to it, I think, uh, either either openly or quietly as a, you know, an ally somehow. And certainly some countries are scared of it. I think that right. that's, you know, it's positioned okay. But, you know, it, it, there are big question marks where Europe's going, what's happening in America, what's going on with Turkey, Iran, you know, what these kind of issues. And, all of those things, if they went the wrong way, are not are not helpful. But Israel also has, you know, is reaching out in Asia with a, a lot of uh, sales and connections to India and things like that. It's a, it's a global player, and they're kind of surprisingly because not every country of Israel's size is a country that opens doors uh, throughout the world. So I think that's certainly in Israel's perspective, that's a positive thing. In terms of the defeat of ISIS, it's good that ISIS has been defeated. Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> well, also, to me, it's comforting to know we have, according to foreign media sources, like uh, some Marines that are capable of striking. So if we are annihilated, then at least... At least we'll take a few down with us. Yeah, a few other uh, yeah. countries down with us. All so right. that's that's a nice... So we, ho- we <laughs> hope to be around next year, guys, to continue <laughs> the podcast. But uh, <laughs> who knows? So the book is called after isis america iran and the struggle for the middle east can people get it on amazon yeah they can get it on amazon if they live in israel they can buy it in Plastimetsky. they can buy it from the publisher geffen is there a digital so, edition or not there's yet? a kindle edition on amazon oh, cool. and amazing. that's uh that's cool i'd like to do uh we're gonna have like an audio book at some point i need someone, awesome. to, do a, I need someone to do a voiceover I don't think I'm going to read it myself. Well, I wonder who could do that. <laughs> what about you, no. Birmingham Actually, accent, I, I, I don't maybe. do I don't do voiceovers, but I, I know people <laughs> who do, so maybe I can connect you. But um, guys, check it out. After ISIS, uh, you can find it online. Um, and and you're on Facebook. You're on Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, Twitter. I have a big Twitter presence. Spell uh, your surname. My or? last name. Um, yeah. It's F R A N T Z M. A-N, Franceman. I'm sorry it's so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Seth Franceman, guys. So look at look him up. And before we go, uh, we have a collaboration with uh, the Jewish Journal. Uh, Jewish Journal is a news outlet uh, from L.A., uh, jewishjournal.com. They've got great columns, great podcasts, so check them out. Also, Arutz Sheva. Uh, we're collaborating with them. You can check them out at israelnationalnews.com. And also a great news source in English. They're all competitors of Jerusalem Post, I guess, which you work for. So oh, let's... we're all friends. Yeah. We're all the same. We're all That's right. what they all say. <laughs> <laughs> but check out Jerusalem Post, too. Yeah, guys. Seth writes there and he yeah. edits there. And we accept donations. So if you like what we do, please help us out. We do this on our free time, guys. So go to 2njb.com slash donate and send some shekels our way or dollars or... We'll need them once war breaks out. Seth, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye, guys.